You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that is our text this morning. Um, We have been for quite some time looking at the life of Abraham. We spent the whole fall looking at the life of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22. And God makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah. After scattering all the nations at the Tower of Babel, he picks this couple, this older couple, and says, through you, you will have a son that will be a blessing to all nations. And I will give you land and I will give you blessing and I will give you offspring as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And Abraham believes God, and he and Sarah relocate. And they begin this long journey with God of waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And this promise is actually uh, begins clear back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, at the fall of humanity, and God issues a curse on Adam and Eve and the serpent. And there's this promise that a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman, a son of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. And that has been threatened. God has done all of these works. And then we see this promise in Abraham and Sarah of a son. And they have to wait and they have to wait and they have to wait for decades for God to bring about this promised son to be given. And then we saw last week in Genesis chapter 22 where once the son of promise finally comes, Abraham is called to lay down his son as an offering to God. And then God delivers him. And, uh, and we have this wonderful picture. And what, what it is, is you really have in the life of Abraham a picture in some ways of the entire Old Testament where there's this promise and then there's waiting for this promise to come to fruition. And, uh, and we get these little hints in Abraham's life where God shows up and gives an additional promise or gives additional clarity to the promise. And you see that same thing happening in the entire Old Testament where there is this promise of a Messiah who will come. There was someone who will come that will fulfill all of these promises made in Genesis made to Abraham, made, as we'll see here in just a moment, to David, and uh, countless other promises of a son who will come, who will be a special son, who will redeem the world, who will make things right. And it was read this morning, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read it again. It was read so well this morning, but I want to refresh your minds in Isaiah chapter 9. This is 700 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, and we have this promise made about the coming of a son. Um, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So there will be darkness before the coming of the one. And that's what we see is that the Bible ends in Malachi. The Old Testament ends and there's 400 years of silence and so many things that happen. It's just great darkness, it seems, from God. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has... Has, has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For Verse 6, after all of this turmoil and waiting and darkness, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the government, shall be upon his shoulder, 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This will not be something mankind manufactures. This will be something that God himself does, is bring about this son who will be a king that is above all kings, the king of kings. And we have this promise that he's going to come as a child. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So this promise of a son that's going to come is what we want to spend our Advent series discovering. And so we've got a five-week Advent series from Matthew chapters 1 through 3 because Matthew starts his gospel when he's introducing people to Jesus. He picks up on this sonship language in the Old Testament. At least five different times he talks about Jesus being a son of and then mentions something significant in the Old Testament that Jesus checks the box for. Some picture, some prophecy, some promise, some covenant that is being fulfilled in this one boy, this one who is the son. Today we're going to look at how he starts. He says, um, he says at the beginning of his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's what we're going to look at today is that Jesus is the son of David. What does that mean? What does it mean that that's the son of David? And why is that the first thing Matthew wants to talk about? Why is that? Of all the things he could say about Jesus, is that the first one? And that's going to be what we discover today. Next week, we'll look at Matthew calling him a son of Abraham. On the 12th, we're going to look at him being called the son of a virgin. On, on, the, tw- on the 19th, we're going to look at him being a son out of Egypt and why that matters. And then lastly, on Christmas Eve, a son of God who is given. So unto us, a son of David is given. Unto us, a son of Abraham is given. Unto us is a son of a virgin given. Unto us is a son of Egypt given. And unto us, a son of God is given. And what that's going to tell us about what we most need and what God is willing to give and why he gives this son. So I want to answer four questions today. This is the, the journey we're going to make today. Four questions. Why is sonship such a big deal in the Bible? We'll cover that very quickly. There'll be more to it than that, but at least give us a framework of why this is an important thing, this idea of sonship. Number two, why does Matthew start in such a boring way with the genealogy? We're going to talk about that a little bit, and it's not boring at all if you understand what Matthew's doing. So I want to show you some cool things about the beginning of Matthew that I think will make you appreciate all that's being communicated about Jesus in just these first few sentences. Fourth question is, why is son of David such an important title? Why does that matter? Why does Son of David, why is that such a massive title in the book of Matthew and in the entire scriptures to talk about Jesus? And then number four, what does this mean for you and me and everything and everyone? Why does this matter? Why is this worth studying? Why is this important for you to know? Why does Matthew start here? Because your whole life hinges on Jesus being the Son of David. So first question, why is sonship such a big deal in the Bible? There's four reasons, very quickly. Is that when you read through the Old Testament, Uh, Sonship matters. Who you're a descendant of, whose name you have, who named you, sets the entire trajectory of your whole life. Names mean something in the Old Testament. When God names things, when God lets Adam name things in the garden, naming things and the authority to name things and who named you makes a huge difference in who you are and what your destiny will be, what your purpose will be, what your calling will be. And so there's really four things here. One is identity. 
you're the son of someone, which gives you a certain identity. That could be vocation. Like if your dad was a plumber, typically down through history, you would be a plumber. It would give you an identity of who you belong to, what family, what place in the world do you have, and what your job is in the world. So typically, if you were born of a shepherd, you would be a shepherd. It just it gives you a place, an identity, a rootedness that's so important in the Bible. So identity is a big part of why sonship is a big deal. To say you're a son of someone is to give you identity. Secondly is authority. To be the son of someone is to share in the authority of, of that person. We see that often when Jesus calls himself the son of God, is that it is often in the context of him being able to do God things. If you're the son of someone, if you're the son of a king, then you have the rights and privileges of a king. So it's this idea of authority, is that you get to speak on the name of someone greater. You get to share in the authority of someone greater. A son gets to share in the rights and authority of his father. He can act on behalf of his father. He can speak on behalf of his father. So being the son of someone is not just identity, but authority. It's shared authority a father shares with their son and that their son. Uh, also, number three, inheritance has the idea of inheritance. What belongs to the father will ultimately belong to the son. So the son will inherit what belongs to the father. And so, uh, uh, so inheritance, ownership. To be the son of someone is to share in their inheritance and to take their inheritance and make it greater, grander to experience it. So inheritance language is that when you're the son of someone, you're the rightful heir of all that that father um, possesses. And then in the Old Testament, the idea of sonship has the idea of prophecy. It marks off the line through which the promised deliverer will come. So the son of a woman, the son of Abraham, son of David, is, is drawing a trajectory is as the family tree forks in all of these different directions. This idea of someone being the son of someone is to be traced by the reader of the Bible so that you know where the rescuer will come. You'll be able to triangulate where he is in the family tree. So as you read through the Old Testament, this idea of sonship is to give identity, show what authority a person has, the inheritance that they are rightfully owning, and then what prophecy, where, what line, what branch in the family tree are we to be watching for the sake of seeing God fix the world. Okay? So that's why sonship is a big deal. To call someone a son is to, is to bring these four things to, to bear and why Jesus is going to check all four of these boxes uh, in all of these important ways about each of these sons. So question number two, why does Matthew begin his gospel this way? If you've, I remember when I was a middle schooler and I started to get really interested in reading the Bible. Um, I was so disappointed with how the New Testament starts. Right? You, you're like, okay, all of this lead up, all of this backstory, all of this stuff in the Old Testament, and you want it to just be explosions right out of the beginning, right? You want the New Testament, you want to flip that page from Malachi, and you want to just pass over those 400 years, and then you want it to be just awesome. And then all of a sudden you get this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then a list of names that you can't pronounce and you don't know who they are, right? And you're like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. I wanted it to be more dramatic than that. Let me just show you why Matthew does this, and it's actually far more dramatic than you might, might appear at first. This is actually a brilliant way to start the New Testament, to start the testimony of Jesus. There's a reason why this is the best way that Matthew could begin his gospel. Um, let me just show you a few things here. Um, so I've got some, uh, some Greek words up here, and here's what's really fascinating, okay? You wouldn't be able to see this in your English, but... The Old Testament, we've been in Genesis for quite a while, right? And genealogies is a big deal, right? Toledot, 
That's Hebrew, right? So what happens is, is that um, later on, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, Alexander the Great sweeps through the world, and everything becomes Greekified. So Greek now becomes the common language, the most important popular language, and so uh, Hebrew scholars decided that they needed to translate the Old Testament into Greek so that people could read it. It's called the Septuagint. So by the time of Jesus and Matthew, everybody is not... The, the vast majority of people are not reading the Hebrew Old Testament. They're reading the Greek Septuagint. In fact, Jesus quotes the Greek Septuagint most of the time when he's quoting the Old Testament. So what happens then is that as the Greek, uh, as the Greek Old Testament is translated, this is what Matthew is working with. And so as he's thinking about how to, believe, how to begin his testimony of Jesus Christ, the very first words are very important to Matthew. And he starts with the words, Biblos, Genesis. Do, you, do those words sound familiar to you? Bible, Genesis, okay? Which literally means the book of the beginnings or the book of the generations or the book of, uh, what does it say here in Matthew? The book of genealogy. This is the exact same phrase that you have at the beginning of, of, the, of verse 2, verse 4. Biblos, Genesis. And then in Genesis chapter 5, 1, Biblos, Genesis. So if you're an, a, a, a Jewish reader, you have been reading, you, you get through your Bible reading plan, you always get through Genesis, right? Through your Bible reading plan. And you, then you get into Exodus, not so bad. Then you get into like Numbers and Leviticus starts to taper off, right? I think that's probably true. Most people are reading Genesis. And in their minds, they're picking up, oh, this story of how God brought humanity into the world, Genesis 2, 4, before the fall, and then after the fall in Genesis 5.1, as this genealogy continues, this is a continuation of that story. Matthew is wanting us to know that at the very beginning of the Bible, a story has begun. A story that began with a good God who created a humanity that he would have relationship with. And then in chapter 3, that story was fractured, was broken, was corrupted by sin. But God continued to tell his story of redemption in Genesis 5.1, and Matthew, I think what he's doing very carefully, because this is the only three times this phrase comes up, where you have a section beginning with this. Matthew is saying that that story of a God who created a world with humanity to relate to them, it is that God that I am speaking of when I speak of Jesus. That he is bringing all of the good things that were in Genesis chapter 2, he's going to bring those again. And all the things that were broken by the time Genesis 5 came around, he's going to fix those things. So there seems to me to be a clear connection that Matthew is starting his gospel in a way that we would see that from the very beginning, this has been God's story. And he has been writing it on generations. He's been writing it on human genealogy. So those genealogies in the Old Testament pull forward to and point forward to Jesus. And Matthew starts with a genealogy to show, hey, guess what? This is the continuation of that story. This is the completion of that story begun in Genesis. All of the good things that God intended to do, all the things that broke in the fall, they're all coming together to find their remedy and fulfillment in this Jesus Christ. Biblos Genesis, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And Christ is a title. Jesus is his name. Christ is a title meaning Messiah the one who will fix all the things that were wrong. He will bring all the good things, and he will fix all the bad things. Matthew indicates that his story connects with the pre-fall creation of God's image bearers, and in Genesis 5.1, the story connects to the post-fall 
recreation and redemption according to promise. Matthew is starting his gospel in a brilliant way that I think would get the attention of his original readers. The fact that he is starting with Biblos Genesis is a call to the fact that this is a big story. This did not come out of nowhere. This is something that God has been working on and redeeming and bringing together. By following carefully crafted genealogy, Jesus wants you to see that this is the culmination of the story of Genesis. This is what fixes what's broken in Genesis. And if you know the Old Testament and you've been tracing the work of God, this is the most epic opening line you can imagine. For him to say, this is the book of the genealogy of the son of David, the son of Abraham. He could not start more epically in terms of pulling the Old Testament forward and saying more significant things about Jesus. This is the most powerful sentence. Maybe John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Those two statements to begin as an introduction of Jesus are massively significant. So now let's look for a moment at why the title son of David is so important. To get this idea of the son of David being so important, you first have to go back about a thousand years before Jesus and figure out who this David character is. God made a promise to Abraham about a thousand years before David, made a promise that through you will be a great nation, that will be a blessing to all the other nations. And that happens through the, the 12 sons of his grandson, Jacob. Also, he got his name changed to Israel. That's where Israel comes from, is God renamed Jacob and his 12 sons then become the 12 tribes of Israel. They get sent into, uh, they, get, they, they end up in, um, in Egypt and they end up enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God miraculously delivers them. God delivers them through a man named Moses and God makes a covenant with them that he is going to bring about his redemption in the world through them. They are, going, they are the fulfillment of Abraham's blessing to all nations, and they are the ones who are going to come into the... And so they come into the promised land, and they begin to have challenges with other people. And they begin to look at the other nations, and they go, we want a king. God, we're, we're frustrated and discontented about how it's going with you as our king. We want to have a human king. We want to have a person that we can look to and go, that's our guy. And God threatens them that this is a bad idea, threatens us maybe, he warns them. In 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 6, here's what happens. So after a while in the promised land and having some turmoil and a kind of an up and down relationship with God, they want to be like the other nations. They want a king, they're demanding a king of Samuel. And here's what Samuel 8, this is where this is happening. Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 6. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, which is always a great way to start a conversation. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Samuel's sons were disasters. So Samuel was kind of the de facto leader, not quite a king, but a prophet, a priest over the people, and the people look to him, and all of the other leaders of Israel come to him and say, you're old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, God, what do you want me to do about this? A king is a bad idea. A king is a bad idea. Um, they're not trusting you, they're rejecting me, and God says, don't, don't worry about this. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, but I'm going to let them have a king. And you need to warn them that if they have a king, their taxes are going to go up. They're going to have their sons sent off to war. And they're going to be tempted towards idolatry. If they're going to be looking towards this one king, if they're looking for their hope to be in a person as opposed to me, then let them have what they want, but warn them. And he does. 
And so basically the way it goes is that God gives them what they want. And basically the deal is you pick first. You pick your first king, I'll pick the second one. So let's let you pick, since you are so smart about how you want your, your nation to go. And so in 1 Samuel 9, they pick Saul. Saul is chosen to be the king. And he's chosen largely because he's taller and better looking than everyone else. So he just, he looked the best on TV. He was the most charismatic. And he ends up being a paranoid, fearful people pleaser. He ends up being a disaster as a king. And so God goes, okay, now it's my turn to pick. You picked based on what man can see. I'm going to pick based on what I can see, which is the heart. And so in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God sends Samuel to go pick the next king. Saul is a one and done. His descendants will not get to continue. Saul is such a disaster as a king that God goes, no, we're going to go a different direction with the Jewish monarchy. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God tells Samuel to go to this family, this little family called of, of Jesse, a family of shepherds, and says, one of these sons is going to be the next king. So he parades all of his sons, starting with the oldest, the most impressive one, working his way down, and Samuel is praying over each one, and God goes, nope, 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 nope. They get to the, last, they get to the end, and Samuel's confused. Samuel's like, Jesse, I know that it's supposed to be one of your sons that's the king, that's going to be the next king, but none of these are the guy. Do you have another son somewhere? And Jesse is almost like, oh, oh yeah, we do have one more. I forgot about that kid. Kids, you ever been left somewhere by your parents? You know how this feels? Oh, that's David. Oh, yeah, we do have one more kid. I forgot. He's out in the field. He's taking care of the sheep. He didn't even get invited with the special guest, right? He didn't even get invited into the thing. Well, go get him. And they bring David in, and Samuel gets confirmation from God. Yes, this is the one. And he anoints him right there and then. This is going to be the next king of the great Israel, the people of God. This is going to be their next leader. And so David then is anointed as a king, but it's a long wait for him. And Saul finds out about this, and there's this tension as Saul tries to kill David. And sometimes likes David, most of the time doesn't like David. And David is a threat because that's God's pick for a king, and I'm the rejected king. And over time, over a long period of time, David comes into the kingship. And he is God's choice because God looks at the heart. God looks at his character. God calls David a man after his own heart. He delivers the people again and again, David does. This is the height of Israel's power is under David and his son Solomon. The kingdom is at its absolute best. It's, it's representing God well in the world for the most part. It is doing, it is prosperous. This is the high point in the whole Old Testament is the kingship of David in many ways. David relies on God, prays before God. He delivers the people again and again from their enemies, most famously against Goliath before he's even a king. He's just a boy and he has such faith in God and God has his hand on him so much that he beats Goliath one-on-one. -on -one. You probably know that story. Maybe the most famous story in the Bible is of this David. He is marked by a passionate worship for God. He writes over 73 of the Psalms in your Bible. And he is actually the most mentioned character in the Old, Old Testament. Abraham is mentioned 162 times in the Old Testament. Moses, who's a titanic figure in the Old Testament, is mentioned 716 times. But David is mentioned over 900 times in the Old Testament. He's the most mentioned name besides God in the Old Testament. This kingship was so amazing. This kingship was so wonderful. This kingship was so epic that David looms large as the most mentioned character in the entire Old Testament. None of that matters. 
None of that matters near as much as what God said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's also going to be up here. That might be hard to read. But 2 Samuel 7 is what makes this title, Son of David, such a big deal. He is Israel's greatest king, no question. He does have God's hand on him. He is godly in many ways and ungodly in some other ways. But he clearly is the high point of the Old Testament. The greatest leader that they had, the greatest of the kings. But none of that matters except for 2 Samuel chapter 7. So what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God and David begin to have a conversation. And David says, God, you shouldn't be your, the representation of your presence, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented him dwelling among his people, should not dwell in a tent. God, you are worthy of greater honor. You are worthy of greater uh, worship. You are worthy of greater extravagance than these things. I want to build you a house. I want the prosperity that you have given to Israel to result in a glorious place for you to dwell and be worshipped by all the people, by all the nations. Let us be the light to all nations that you intend us to be by building you a temple where people can come and worship you and there is now a dwelling place that merits your name. Your name is so great you ought not be living in a tent. You ought not be dwelling among your people when your people have greater dwellings than you do. Let me build you a temple. Let me build you a house. And God responds in chapter 7, verse 11, second half of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. So God says, no, nah, David, that's fine. I, you kind of misunderstand. <laughs> I don't really need a house. We'll worry about that later. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which means die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. This will be your own genetic son and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes a covenant with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. Is that there will be a dynasty. Your dynasty will last forever. Saul's dynasty was one and done. In some ways, Saul was like the Ishmael. He was kind of the man-made king that failed. David is going to be a king like Isaac. He's going to be a king of promise. He's going to be a king that lasts forever. He's going to have a dynasty that lasts forever. And we have two things that happen here. This happens a lot in prophetic writing, is that there's a short-term immediate fulfillment, and then there's the greater fulfillment. Because you see right here that he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So the smaller fulfillment of this prophecy is that you're not going to build me a temple. You're going to gather the materials and your son Solomon will. And I will have a special relationship with Solomon. But there's also this greater fulfillment of the promise. So there's this little fulfillment that is brought about in Solomon. But then this image is also pointing to a greater one because Solomon won't be a king forever, but there will be a king that comes from this lineage that will be a king forever. These two images are kind of blurred together, this image of Solomon and this image of Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
So that part about the iniquity is not speaking about Jesus, it's speaking about Solomon. And we've got this double-layered prophecy where in the short term will be fulfilled by Solomon who will build a glorious house for God. But ultimately, there will be a son of David who will be a king forever, will be a king for eternity, will be a dynasty that lasts forever. So for over a thousand years, all of the world, and especially Israel, is watching the lineage of David, looking for this eternal king looking for the fulfillment of this promise, the Messiah. So the son of David is shorthand for saying the promises of God to make everything right, to bring about his kingdom, to fix all the wrongs, to defeat all the enemies, to bring peace and prosperity and justice for eternity is all wrapped up in this phrase, son of David. The good days of David are not gone forever. They will come and they will be greater and they will be eternal and they will be perfect. So all of this hope is put into this promise, this covenant, that God will bring a king that will make all things right. And then you get to Matthew chapter 2 in the first couple of verses. And notice, it's not just Israel that's watching for this. It's not just Israel that's waiting for a king to come out of Israel. But you actually see in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So ever since this promise of David, the whole world, to some extent, has been watching Israel under Roman occupation. looks like a fractured, broken, dying nation. And all of a sudden, when Jesus comes, the son of David fits. It fits the bill. It fits the promise to such an extent that people from other countries, other religions travel for weeks to come catch a glimpse of this potential son of David, this fulfillment of the prophecies, the one who will be the eternal glorious king who will bring justice and provision and prosperity for eternity for all who are submitted to his rule. So do you see why the son of David is such a big deal? It's a shorthand way of saying the kingdom of God is still coming. The promise of God is still coming. And he'll come as a descendant of David and everybody's watching and waiting for a thousand years until, boom, Christ is born in Bethlehem. So what does this mean for you and me and everything and everyone? So here we go, fourth question. I think the best way to answer this question is to first look at those who first encountered Jesus, what it meant for them. Because they're the ones that are originally waiting. They're the ones that get to see him. So let me just walk you through Matthew's gospel real quickly. This son of David title happens 11 more times. As people recognize Jesus, think about all the promises of the good old days under David. They remember the great promise that God made that one of David's son will bring an eternal dynasty that will be greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Those people who are waiting on that promise see Jesus And look at what they do. Look at who recognizes Jesus as this son of David, this perfect, eternal, glorious king. In Matthew 9, 27, we have two blind men that recognize Jesus. That's the irony in the Gospels. Is that the Pharisees who know and can see with their eyes don't see Jesus for who he is. But the blind men see Jesus. And they say this, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, Son of David. 
And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. So these two blind guys are sitting there, and they're going, We really want to be not blind anymore. We'd really like to be unblinded. And they hear about Jesus and they call out, have mercy on us, son of David, the king who makes everything right, even eyeballs. They call out in faith and Jesus responds favorably to that call. He's not just a king that can get rid of political enemies. He can get rid of physical enemies. The son of David, God's king. In Matthew 12, we have witnesses of Jesus casting out a demon who is in, in, in a person who is blind and mute. So blind, mute person, also demon-possessed, just a lot of things not going well for this person. Matthew chapter 12, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? So they see someone who has the authority to banish demons and heal bodies, and they go, This might be the king. This might be the king. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, Only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, can a man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, let you be the judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom, the Son of David kingdom of God has come to you. So David goes, no, this is kingdom of God work. This is Son of David work. In Matthew 15, Jesus travels way outside the boundaries of Israel and meets a Canaanite woman. And listen to what she says. So this is, this is outside. This is outside. This is an outsider looking in on Israel, watching, waiting for their Messiah. Verse 21, When Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So Jesus kind of gives her the cold shoulder. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, meaning that the son of David is really Israel's king. Why should I help you? And he knows what she's going to say. He's not being harsh here. He's making a point that's meant to be recorded for you and me. She came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread. It's not right for Israel's king to be wasting his time on non-Israel people and throw it to the dogs. He said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yeah, but even the king of Israel will be a blessing to all the nations, won't he? Doesn't that spill over beyond Israel's people to all who would trust in this king, all who would bow to the knee to this king? Would they not also receive a blessing from him? And he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The call there was that he was the son of David that he was the king who could fix everything. Matthew 20, two more blind men. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus passed them by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Maybe they heard of the other two blind guys and go, let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot. We've got nothing to lose. The crowd rebuked them. The Jesus followers were like, you be quiet, (laughs) which is unfortunate. Telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let us, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And then in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem for the last time, Passion Week. And what we see is that the crowd as they enter Jerusalem the week before Passover, the week, the Sunday before Passover, look at their response to him as he comes. I'm going to read a larger section here, but just think of this son of David language. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what the prophet, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king. This is son of David. Behold your king, your eternal king, your perfect king, your promised king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Not coming on a war horse, but coming on a humble donkey. To serve, not to conquer. A foal, the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Just a worship service of all worship services going, this is our promised eternal king who will fix everything, who will rule and reign, who will bring justice and compassion and forgiveness. He will make things right. Skip down to verse 15. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The kids are getting it. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? Jesus is saying, I am the son of David. I am the king. I am the king bringing a kingdom. And then in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus himself initiates a conversation with the unbelieving Pharisees. He says, now all the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This is Jesus' question. And they asked, they said to him, the son of David. He's a descendant of David. He will be in the likeness of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So then he quotes a psalm where David is talking about his son being his Lord. There would be someone that descendants from him that's greater than him. And he says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone ask him any more questions. So here's the bottom line. Jesus being the son of David means that he checks the identity box. He's from the right lineage. He checks the authority box. He is like David with all of the kingship privileges times a thousand. He checks the inheritance box. He is the owner and rightful place of the throne of God's people. And he checks the prophecy box. He's from the right lineage. He has the right rule. He has the right heart after God. Jesus is the son of David, the perfect eternal king. So Matthew could not have started more audaciously. He could not have started more spectacularly. 
In six words, he has signaled the most epic thing that could, the most epic claim that could ever be made: that a king, an eternal king, has come into the world. The gift of the son of David tells us what we most need, which is a king. We need a king. There is someone ruling on the throne of our hearts that is an imposter. There is someone in each one of our individual lives that is ruling and reigning our lives and must be displaced, must be pushed out of the way so that King Jesus can rule and reign over every human heart. What we most need is a king, is what, Dave, what Matthew is saying. God promised a king to come and rule and reign us, and he is a good king. So we must dethrone the king of our own hearts and bow the knee to King Jesus. That's the call of Matthew. Ever since the fall and even before the fall, God saw the mess of the entire world. He saw all of it from beginning to end. He decided of his own free will to redeem it. He concluded that rescue would have to be a gift because these people could never afford it. They could never pay back the debt. And so God himself concluded that it would take the gift of a king, a king of the highest caliber, a king of the highest character, a king with infinite resources, a king of infinite grace and power and glory. It would take the highest of highest of authority and resources to redeem you from the rule and reign of sin in your life. It would take a king, a son of David of epic proportions. And that's exactly what God is willing to give. Not only is it what your greatest need is, it is also what God is most willing to give. Genesis 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes would not perish with the king of sin, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Romans 8.1-31-32 what shall we say then if these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, if he would give us his son to be our king, to die in our place, to rise again, to rule and reign, to intercede for us nonstop before the Father, if God is willing to give us that, will he not give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all the things with Christ? So what's the right response then for you and me and the whole world? John the Baptist tells us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. In the person of Jesus. The kingdom is a person, a son of David who has come. And the only right response to now understanding who Jesus is, is to turn around, to alter the course of your life and come under his submission. Jesus himself, when he begins his ministry, begins with these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, the son of David, is standing before you and you have a choice. Will you remain king of your own life or will you bow the knee? Will you change course in light of this king that's given for you? So unto us, a son of David is given and I encourage you right now to bow the knee to him, to repent of your sins, to dethrone whatever king is in your heart and take Jesus as your king. The glorious reality of the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ, and he is the perfect king. For those original readers, receiving Jesus Christ meant wholeness, meant forgiveness, meant restoration, meant fixed relationships and fixed bodies. And we may not get all that in this life, but we are assured that King Jesus will bring all of those things who trust in him. So bow the knee to him. Receive him as your king. Let's pray. God, we thank you. 
for this big, deep dive into so much of the Old Testament um, where we see that this figure of David was called by you, walked with you, sinned against you, all these ups and downs, and yet was meant to give us an indicator that you are not done with the world, that you have a promise to keep, you have a redemption to fulfill, and we thank you that Jesus fits the bill. That every time someone called him the son of David, he responded positively, and something gloriously kingly was fixed, was made new, was redeemed. And so, Lord, we come before you, and we acknowledge that you are the son of David, and we bow the knee to you as king over everything. We give you our full allegiance. We give you our full trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.